um, we'd like to talk um, about something rather large in Norway. Not much I can say to that, really. A large thing. A thing? A large thing in Norway. Shaped like a turnip? An imp well, possibly, you never know. I mean, no. <laughs> we had raw turnip that night, too. Sorry. <laughs> You know, Nathaniel, this takes me right back to our wedding night. <laughs> we had raw turnip that night, too. Yes. The turnip surprise. Well, it would be a surprise. It's quite big and it's in Norway. Indeed. Uh, no, it is not a turnip, in fact. It is a, it is a, it is a, a huge magnificence in Norway. No. Um, belonging yes. to the chieftain. I'm quite lost for words, really. Well, you would be. I know. I mean, it's not every day you see something like that. No, absolutely not. You yeah. you you bedazzled. You bedazzled with the with the with the sheer magnitude. I mean, it's about two thirds of the way up Norway. It's really cold. You don't expect something that size when it's really really cold. You kind of expect everything to be sort of huddled, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, retracted, smaller. <laughs> yeah. Um, you do not expect it all to be out there. No, you, 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 things are going to want to want to stay warm, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. So obviously, you, you kind of everything like gathers up. Yeah, that's what you'd think. That's how it works. And only it didn't. Only it didn't, and no. instead it ended up really quite large. is this uh, hall? We're talking about a hall. Yes, what did you think? I was definitely talking about a hall. Okay, all right, fair enough. It's good that we're on the same page. Absolutely. Would you like to introduce us? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely listeners, before we get going, we'd like to say hello to some very special friends of ours at Awaken the North. Hello, Awaken the North. Hello, lovely, lovely people. It is fabulous to see you round the virtual campfire. We can see you, even if you can't see us. It's a virtual campfire thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's magic. Like, I know. Yeah. On on special days, we do yeah. magic. <laughs> if you are looking for a an international, inclusive, heathen community that is very, very vibrant, very active, has a really good discount, Discord with lots of channels. Don't look at me like that. Do they offer discount as well? <laughs> I can take my wife anywhere. Then check out Awaken the North and see what you think. Lovely listeners, if you are wondering what on earth you're listening to... <laughs> you probably are, in fairness. And you're thinking, hang on a minute, this was supposed to be a Frithcast. You are actually in a Frithcast. Welcome to Frithcast 142. 
You are in a Frithcast. You can check out any time you like, but you can never but, leave. Well, yeah, you see, I wasn't going to go there. I was scare them off. Well, I mean, we can't scare them off, but you know. Well, this is true. Yeah. This is true. Number what, did you say? 142. 142. Cool. Yeah. Alrighty. Um, so in a couple of episodes time, we get our random reel for this year. We do. It'll be 12 times 12, won't it? It'll be 12 times 12. So it'll be our sixth year. And we will be releasing our random reel around Yule time as we usually do with all the very maddest bits that didn't make it to the episodes. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't realised we were that far. We are that far down the year, aren't we? We're in November. We are in November. Crikey. So, lovely listeners, if you're wondering who exactly you're listening to, my name is Suzanne Martin. I am a heathen with a mostly head full of stuff and coffee this evening. There is a lot of coffee. There is there is considerable coffee going on, there it has to be said. Considerable coffee going on. Um I am I am Kate. I'm a I'm a I I'm a just coffee powered druid is my usual descriptor. Yeah. Um it's all good. Something along those lines. Um, but most importantly, uh, in, in order to justify my participation in this nonsense, I mean, in this podcast, uh, I live here. Um, so, you know, here I am. Ta-da! Ta-da! <laughs> um, yeah, so, welcome to Frithcast. Um, before you joined us, uh, lovely listeners, we were just discussing um, uh, a hall. A sizable hall. A sizable hall. Um, which uh, Suzanne is going to tell us about. A little bit. Which is in Norway. It is in Norway. Lovely listeners. I don't know why I said it like that. I sounded like (laughs) Sesame Street or something. Norway. Now, children, can you all say Norway? Why am I talking like that? (laughs) Anyway. It's fine. I know. We'll edit it out. We, we don't usually. We'll edit it all out. It's Let's fine. just edit the whole episode <laughs> yeah, out. Just edit that, the entire thing. <laughs> it's gone. No, we're going to go take a trip up to Norway. So if you are Canadian or Scots, I believe the phrase is, get your big coat out. <laughs> Something along those lines, yes. Yes. We're going to go and take a trip up to fairly north in Norway. Okay. It's the bit that's just not just cold, but really, really cold. Yeah. So if you go up the west coast of Norway and you go about two thirds of the way up, Mm -hmm. the west coast is covered in tons of wee little tiny islands. Okay. So we're looking for the Lofoten Islands. All right. It's about two thirds of the way up Norway on the west coast. Okay. And up there... On um, Lofoto Island, there is, uh, there was found, well, let's go back to the 1980s, 1981 to be precise. I'll go and get my um, other hair. Yeah. And you're wee like, you know, My Little Pony and Sylvester McCoy's Doctor Who. Oh, wow. Not in 1981. No, it was still Tom Baker in 1981. Tom Baker in that, yeah. No, it can't have been Tom Baker in 1981. He was doing... He Tom was in Baker? 1974. Oh, Peter... What's his name? Peter Davison. Davison, with the cricket whites going on. 
Because they, they cancelled it in 1989. They did. After McCoy. And that was Sylvester McCoy. Yeah. I thought... I could have been like just before McCoy. I'm going to have to look that up because okay. otherwise it's going to be like Tom Baker, Peter Davison, Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy, like four four, four doctors in like like less than... Doesn't matter. Carry on. Okay, so we're going to go back to the age of My Little Pony and Thundercats the cartoon series on TV-ish. I think it's around that era. Shiny 19... jackets and shoulder pads. 1981. We're looking at day glow leg warmers and really big perms. Oh, wow. Yeah. Classic stuff. It was. A little bit of soft cell. Indeed. And electronica. Yeah. And you're away. Lot everything had synth. And some soft rock. Was Even that... the synth, the soft rock got into the synth the other way around. That the one. The synth got in. Yeah, everything yeah. was... Am I thinking... It might have been later. I don't know. Stuff like... I don't know, Tangerine Dream. Yeah. That kind of thing. Vangelis. Vangelis. Mm. I don't know. I may be getting so, the dates. So, 1981. Anyway. Now we've set the scene in Britain. Yeah. We're <laughs> going go to the Norway. Norway. Everybody here yet? Good. Excellent. <laughs> so, we've moved the virtual campfire up two thirds of the way up Norway on the west coast to Lofoten Islands. In 1981. In 1981. And there is a farmer here and he is ploughing his land ready to do the, the farming thing mm -hmm. and he finds that his plough has turned over artifacts okay so he notifies the shiny shiny happy professional people the shiny artifact authority they they are big on the shiny artifacts the saa and they come out and they do their thing and they get very very excited you would i know shiny artifacts yes and we don't get to find them very often. No. Because usually we just get holes in the ground with mud in them. And when you do, and when you do dig, uh, when you do uncover stuff while you're farming, most of the time it's tommy knockers. You don't want to go there. And you just don't want tommy knockers. No. No. You know. Just yeah, no. You have to be careful. You have to be so so you. careful. Anyway, in this case, we've got a shiny or shiny artifact. Well, so the S several of them actually. Right. And they did a full-on excavation, mm -hmm. and then they did several more years of full-on <laughs> excavation. So they did A-sex, A-sex, a, a, a sorry no. about that. So they did a full-on excavation, and then another excavation, and then they kept on excavating. Yeah, they did quite a number of seasons up there, what they call a season of, of archaeology. They're, I had to guess the ground being frozen up in Norway most of the time. They're very short seasons for archaeology. I was going to say, that's going to... Unless that's gonna... you get generators and you put a tent over the whole thing and you thaw the ground out and dig it as it thaws. That's a lot of energy though, isn't it? You can do it. Mm. It's not advised, but mm. you can do it. So it was excavated and they didn't just find a, a grave. We, we talked about some of the graves before. Yeah. They didn't find... Um, grave and grave goods, which we know can sometimes be a really good source of shinies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What they found instead was post holes. Okay. And you get archaeologists get very excited when they find post holes because what you do when you put a post into the ground is you dig a hole bigger than your post, you put your post in the hole, and then you backfill it with dirt. Okay, yeah. So you're packing the dirt around yeah, yeah. where the post is. If you're putting a stake into the ground, it's usually got a pointy end 
and you're hammering it or just pressing it, pushing it into the ground. So when you're looking at it in archaeology... So it digs its own hole. Yeah. Yeah. You're looking at that in what they call in section. Mm-hmm. You're looking at that in like a cross section, a vertical face. And they, they, a stake hole will just be a uh, like a shadow of where the stake has been because obviously where the stake was, it's liable to be either be a different colour soil yeah. because the stake's been removed and more soil's fallen into it, which will show you up nice and easily on this kind of um, little pattern. Yeah. on your graph or the substance inside where the stake would be the stake rotted away and it's all organic kind of dark soil in the middle and the rest is like crappy soil and you get that nice delineation got you so that's if that's if the, if the woods just just decayed away over if time it's decayed away yeah so post holes are kind of the same and kind of different they're a little bit more complex and they tend to be when you're putting up like foundations for buildings mm-hmm you put post holes in or palisade walls. Yeah. You have a lot of post holes in very quick succession. So depending on where your post holes are and how big they are, you can then roughly tell what kind of sized building or fence or enclosure that you're working with. Okay. And through the joys of architecture and physics, you can tell roughly what how high the building is. Right. Because you can work out the maximum weight that, that a post, a set of posts that size would hold and the structure of the roof that it would have to hold it. Yeah, I guess you can. I would, ne- I would never have thought of that, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. So it's sideways trip into post holes, which you often do on archaeological sites. Trip, <laughs> trip into post holes. <laughs> quite often. So what they found up here was a set of post holes and they got very, very excited. Okay. Because what we tend to find, if you're looking at Iron Age roundhouses, you tend to find a set of circular post holes, and then there's a gap where the door is. Yeah. This building was, it's roughly rectangular, and it's very big. Okay. It's a big, big space. And it's got, on the inside of it, a number of rooms marked out with smaller post holes, so they're less weight-bearing and more structural walls. Right, so we can we can we have a guess that these, these we can see these are internal. Yeah, yeah, internal pieces. Okay, of whatever they are. Whatever it was. Whatever it was. So this has been identified as the chieftain's hall. Okay. Primarily because it is massive. <laughs> this hall is eighty-three meters long. Eighty-three meters. And. Probably, I think it's just under 10 metres wide. If I'd thought ahead, I would have done conversions so that we can tell non-metric listeners how big that is. That's like times 3.3, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure what what the conversion formula is, but what I will say is 83... Meters. We did have a we did have a quick look, mm. and eighty three meters is one quarter of the length of the USS Nimitz. Yeah. You know those massive American supercarriers. It's a bit big. It's one of their. Um, I think I think Nimitz is still in service. I'm fairly sure, but that's that's three hundred and thirty three meters long, if I remember rightly. So we're talking a pretty big a quarter of the length yeah. of that. It's a pretty big structure massive massive space and so they found a a set of post holes for these mahoosive posts Mm. and then they got very excited because these are way bigger than house posts and it turns out you've got an 83 meter hall 
83 meters of rectangular hall. Goodness. Yeah. So they did a very cool thing and they marked where the original posts would have gone in. They've put like two foot posts on the site. So you can go to the site and you can see the outline in posts. Okay. So you can go there and, and, and walk around it. Mm. There's a couple of other really, really cool things up there. Um, a bit like the site at Osberg that we've talked about before, they built a museum to right. house this and its artifacts. And as part of that museum setup, they built a living history museum. Okay. They rebuilt a replica of this 83 meter hall to scale. So this hall that they have up there is 83 meters by nine and a half. It's about the same again in height. It is a massive, massive space. It's a huge building. That's surprisingly, so that's, that's more or less, I can do the maths there. So that's eight times longer than it is wide. Yeah. That's quite a ratio, isn't it? It's a big, big space. So it's got internal pillar work to help hold the ceiling up. Yeah. The ceiling is like, um, it's almost a hogback one. So it's almost a curved one from end to end. Oh, yeah. So it's a massive, it's not like a flat roof. But I it's suppose... It's a, a big pointy roof. Do you mean, yeah, from 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 end to end along the 83 metres? Because so, yeah. that's going to that's gonna brace it, brace the weight, presumably, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So it's got... So you can go up there and there are films and videos on YouTube of people going to the museum and walking through mm. this space because they've recreated it. They've not just given you an empty building. No. They've let, they do living history displays in there. So they have people in full kit who are giving weaving displays. They've got blacksmiths on site. They have an axe throwing range and an archery range. And they also have... <laughs> ancient animal breeds that would have been known to those people <clears throat> i was gonna say do they have a do they have a catching a catching a pig catching a greased pig range they have pigs up there but i would not want to piss you don't want to trying to catch it <laughs> they are big looking things it was only because you said axe throwing and i'm sorry for some reason this this far in 142 episodes in you said axe throwing and 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 it reminded me of the old uh, Amiga computer game Heimdall. Not to do. Well, I don't know that it was to do with the actual god. I never really played through it, but I remember the first bit of it was sort of a tutorial, and you ended up having to do um, the thing with throwing axes at the woman's hair. Yeah, yeah. At the to cut the pigtails yeah. off. Yeah. And one of the one of the other challenges was was uh, catch a greased pig well, in these, a pig pen. These pigs are not like pigs that we know. These pigs are basically like. Mostly boar. Yeah. <laughs> They're big. Yeah. Um, but they also have, because... Meaningful pigs. Yeah, very meaningful <laughs> pigs. Um, next, not far off where the hall is, this Chieftain's Hall is, they have the harbour because it's on an island. Okay. So they have a harbour and they have two replica longships that they will do sail they will go and sail out and take people who've come to see the museum oh wow and they will take them out and you row it you crew it oh my and then you come back in again afterwards hang on i'm on holiday i don't expect to have to do work <laughs> oh that that must i bet that's a bit special I, I think it probably is i uh, if you can go up there in 
summer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. know whether it makes a whole lot of difference temperature-wise. Well, it's still going to be possi- cold for us. Possibly not, I guess. So they found on the site there is a museum with the original artefacts in and they also have the replicas that you can touch and hold and feel the weight of and make you know be able to handle them because that to me is a almost a better way of helping people understand what those things are like than showing you it in a glass case with a label on mm. sometimes you have to do that because the originals are too fragile to be handled yeah and you certainly may not want to give them to very enthusiastic children and adults to run around the space with yeah some of the things that they found on the site, they found Viking swords there. Okay. Um, they found jewellery, glassware and ceramics. Right. So being able to look at the styles and the origins of where those might have transferred, you know, travelled from, been traded from. Yeah. You've got links with England and Southern Europe. Okay. Um, you've got pearls in jewellery from Southern Europe or Turkey. Mm-hmm that are coming through and they found what they call gulgubbers and they're like little metal thin gold plates that have a, a design embossed on them okay. almost. And they found five of these and you've probably seen them in, in books. They're like a little tiny, they're about two centimeters tall, just smaller than an inch. Yeah. And they're little metal plates and they've got no fastenings on them they've got nothing that says that they were worn as jewelry or anything else and they find them in quite a few contexts and they found five of these and they found them in the north corner of the longhouse mm. so they're like well, what was that all about why are they specifically here why why is it just in this one place so what are they for the little little plates they're, they're made of they're made of thin gold they're made of gold mm. little plate uh, would they would they be currency then or don't think they're currency they're too thin okay and the currency we tend to find tends to be coins and hack silver that they you know quite happily cut into quarters well that was my thinking it's that they're not they're not they don't tend to be very uh how can i put it they don't tend to go for like delicacy in no. terms of media med, a medium of exchange it's it's just basically we, what's the value and yeah we don't tend to find gulgubbers in hordes okay um so gulgubbers have they commonly have two figures on them. Right. Um, and they're like two figures that are facing each other and they're either, they've got their arms up or they're touching each other's faces. And there's quite a few different designs. Okay. And some people have theorised that it's the Frey and Gerd, courtship of Gerd story. All right. Um, but at this time in Norway, that story isn't very well popularised, it isn't very well known. There is a separate theory that says that these two figures up here is Odin and Skadi. Okay. Which is a very different... Yeah, <laughs> a I very didn't... very different relationship, a very different pairing. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have put them together, together. No. in any particular... I I wouldn't have either, but that's not, okay. Not based on the mythology that I know. I, I know, mean, it's... and me too. Hmm. Yeah. So there is that sort of odd theory, and there... From the material that they've got here, you've got about five dissertations that have been written on different aspects <laughs> of it. I can imagine. That are just quite something. Mm. The thing with archaeology is it tends to play second to history. Okay. We tend to take written accounts and decide that they are the absolute definite understanding of what happened. And then we look for archaeology to back it up. 
like they did with um, Jericho. Yes. And they um, did with the mythical sites, and they were the original, a lot of the very original 18th, late 18th century archaeologists were looking for early Greek, classical Greek sites for the Greek myths. They were well, looking they, for Troy. I was going to say they were trying to find Troy, but did they ever find a, they any candidates? Or? Didn't. They did call, there was a particular Mycenaean mask that they got very excited about and called the Mask of Agamemnon. Completely the wrong dating. Okay. <laughs> encouraging but they're trying to then use the historical accounts of troy in that case and the siege of troy and try and find archaeology that fitted it somebody uh, i'm trying to think of the dude who did the arthurian stories the guy who made up all the history um basically just sat down and made a whole history of britain out of oh whole jeffrey cloth. of monmouth jeffrey of monmouth and he just pulled it all out of his i mean he pulled it all out of thin air he did um, wove it from smoke. Wove it from smoke. I like that. I know. That's nice. I thought you'd like it. Because um, didn't he... Was it him that originally said that... Who originally argued that Troy was in Britannia somewhere? Do you know? I don't and know. That, and, that they'd, and, that's why, and that's why King Arthur was descended from... Space Atlanteans? What are we talking about? Oh, here? the guy! The guy! Aeneas. Look, look like Brad Pitt. That's... Achilles. Famous fella. Achilles, yes. That's not Brad Pitt, but okay. He looked like Brad Pitt. I've seen it on the telly. In colour? Yeah. Wow. They were very clever, those ancient Greeks. <laughs> I mean, granted, they didn't have a word for blue, but they still knew you know, what they were doing when it came to making documentaries. Well. That's what I'm saying. I'll give you that one. So, yeah. Um, anyway, him. And he was he was trying to say that Troy was in... I'm, I'm fairly sure it was him. Jeffrey of Monmouth. Yeah. Yeah. Not but Achilles. In any case, we you would I'm I'm just sort of getting I'm just sort of basically saying I, I get that there was the habit of you read the you read the text first and then you try and find archaeology that matches it. Yeah. And most of the time it doesn't quite work. There are occasions where it does, mm -hmm. but actually archaeology is very much a discipline now on its own. Okay. And we find a lot of archaeology where there is no written record that will match what we're seeing mm. or what we found or describing the events that have led up to the record that we have. Yeah. Here is where it gets quite interesting for that big chieftain's hall. So the Lannamabok, which is um, the... The book of the names of the land. Not quite. No? No. But okay, we'll go with that. I was giving it a go. The land naming book... Right? Yeah. Yeah? That has a lot of accounts of... Isn't that what I said? Settlement. <laughs> has a lot of accounts of settlement and family descendants and generations because it's recording who's got what land. Yeah. Doing what kind of thing. Okay. It talks about a, um, a chief who lives on the island of Lofot. All right. This sounds similar. Yes, very similar. <clears throat> so Chief Olaf Tvenumbruni. Do that again? I can't. Yeah. <laughs> Chief Olaf. Olaf, okay. Not the talking snowman out of Frozen. No. Another Olaf. There are other Olafs. There are other Olafs. I, I to be honest, I don't, have I ever watched Frozen? The one with the Let It Go song in it. I know the song. Okay. And I know the snowman you're talking about because I've seen I've seen clips and pictures. Yes. I don't honestly think I've ever sat down and watched the film. 
That's okay. Not that snowman. Okay. Another Olaf. All right. All right. And there's a record of him that he gives. He's known for giving sacrifices to the gods. Right. Good. He's known for the fact that he's married and he has three sons. Bit of piety. That's good. Well, yes. Um, he has three sons. Yep. He has a wife. Mm-hmm. And he's known as a skin changer. Ah. He's somebody that they understand can change his skin to that of an animal. Yeah, see, that that took a left turn at Albuquerque, didn't it? I know. I thought I changed a good bit till the last bit. I was just... I was I was, I was. was onto the whole, yeah, you know, Viking, like standard Viking family man, loyal to the gods, yeah. all that kind of thing, you know, doing doing the things that are thing at the time. Yeah. So also skin changer, like insert sound of screeching brakes here. Right there? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So, yeah, he's he's listed in the records as a skin changer. Okay. Now, we don't know whether he's the chieftain of the hall that we found in archaeology. Right. But the, the, the historical record is talking about a chief on Lofot Island. Okay. A, a well-known chief on Lofot Island. And what we have there is this huge, big, what they call the chieftain's hall. Yeah. It's a massive, massive space. So the amount of resources and labour and logistics that you would need to put that together mm. in an age where you don't have ships to transport your timber and you certainly can't measure them down to the millimetre, that is huge. Yeah. I so mean, I, I'm, I'm no expert, but it would seem to tie in. Yeah, it would, but it could equally belong to one of his sons. True. Yep. Yep. Or his father. Yeah. Fair thinking. Um, so the site, they've dated the hall and said that basically by the 950s, this hall is abandoned. Okay. And there's a great upheaval in the north of Norway around that time. And a lot of chieftains move elsewhere and off the islands. Right. So they think that's, you know, it puts me in mind of what happens at the Shetlands and the, uh, not the Falklands, but the Shetlands when they move a whole community off the islands and they uh, because they say your living's going to get too hard we're all moving back into another island isn't that what happened with saint kilda yeah there is a community there's a there's um oh there was yeah there's an island off and i i really should know more about it but there's an island up in the north that's still got that like that still got the houses and stuff all 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 over it but there's no people no they they people abandoned it or were removed from it. I don't really know what the history is, to be honest. I should shut up. So, yeah, they they moved. They figured out it got abandoned around the 950s. Okay. And so it would fit the written record that they have, but in some cases the written record doesn't match what they have. Mm -hmm. In some cases the written record tells us something completely different to the archaeology. Excellent. In some cases we don't like even a challenge. have a written record or we have a written record and no archaeology. Right. So for me, it's not so much that archaeology plays second fiddle to history and just backs up what history says. Mm. It's that they are two separate disciplines looking at two very distinctly different ways of interpreting what's going on. Mm, yeah. So when you well, become a historian, you don't just read the text literally. You're, you're learning to interpret it. Yeah. in its own context and in its own way and with the language that they're using and what the political situation is at the time and archaeology is it's the same but different you learn to read context sheets and you learn to read soil changes and you learn to read you know what timber they're using when it's cut yeah 
so if you've got any tree rings left in those timbers and there is work in Sheffield actually they sequenced pine okay and they took samples from an awful lot of <coughs> pine trees and dendrochronology you can see the growth rings on trees yeah so when you cut them it's what causes the grain is the the growth rings yeah. depending on how you've cut the timber you can see the growth rings either in circles or lengthways down your piece of wood yeah so what they did was they found out that each year has a unique set of growth and then winter and then growth and then winter mm -hmm. so you can tell what whether that year is a good year or a bad year and then you can then match so on tree number one when you're looking at the rings you've got you know years 50 to 62 that you can then match to your and then on tree number two you've got years 49 to 53 and you can suddenly start fitting together a complete schedule of what pine trees so like growing if, like in any one area if one year is like particularly dry or for for some reason particularly cloudy and there's not as much sun that year won't grow or as what well. have you it doesn't grow as much and you can see that reflected in the like yeah, presumably it, it like won't the width be as of the ring, or, ring yeah but so they've measured these down to millimeters and they can then sequence thousands of years worth of tree growth wow over hundreds of different of samples of trees mm. so if they've got any dendrochronology from this they can then take those tree rings or take that tree data and identify the species and see if there is like a master list and then be able to pin it precisely as to when, how old the tree was when they cut it down and what year it was felled. That's like Everything. the thing that vaguely reminds me of um, the thing I heard once completely on a totally different subject, but it's just, it's, it's the same degree of cleverness and I'm fairly sure I heard somebody talking about this on the radio once. I hope I did, because otherwise I'm going to come across as like a complete conspiracy theorist. Um, the, electric, the electrical grid. And because the electric grid in a country, like say, say Britain, Britain's power grid. Yeah. Hums. Yes. And it, over the course of um, a day or a week, or a year or what have you it hums at different um intensities yeah yeah because of changing demand and and um you know changing like distribution and all that kind of thing and sort of oscillating uh, resonances and all that kind of stuff and i i i remember hearing this thing that said that they can they they inverted commas they with a capital t um if they have a recording and they want to find out when it was recorded, they actually can compare the background hum on the recording that the people involved in making it wouldn't even been aware have been aware of yeah. to the pattern of the hum of the power grid at a certain, at a certain time. Yeah. And, and they, they can, can actually match it up exactly where it is and work out when, yeah. when the recording was, was taken, which I, and I remember sort of hearing about it and thinking, I mean, like I say, it may be that it's complete nonsense and it was it was some <laughs> fiction thing, but it sounds like a similar sort of thing. It's like, you know, you you go through this, you have this constantly recording pattern, not pattern, but this this constantly recording record, uh, and you can and like you say, you can go over, you can cover thousands of years by yeah going from one tree to the next and and overlapping them and comparing them. And so now you can take a very small piece of old archaeological timber. Yeah. 
photograph the growth rings and the computer will, you can feed it into the computer, the computer will identify what pattern of growth rings it's got and then it will go into the database and match that missing, that jigsaw piece up to a piece it's already got. Like, like a fingerprint? That is amazing. It is quite a trick. So, or it'll come back saying, out of cheese error, redo from start. Redo from start! <laughs> Yay! Melon, so melon. it kind of got me thinking about when we often see this sort of image of the cabin in the woods on its own and said, you know, would you go and live here? And everybody goes, oh, God, yes. Yeah. But what actually happens is that to build a hall of this size takes a community. Yeah. It takes specialist craftsmen. And then that hall becomes not only that chieftain's home, but probably a very big local gathering space. Mm -hmm. So it's likely that around that area there are remains of houses, of stables, of animal spaces, of crops, of everything. I mean, I presume... Boat building out in the harbour of fishing ports. I presume there would be, because a structure like that isn't going to be a fortification, is it? I mean, it's like you you can imagine getting a sort of a, a castle sitting on top of a promontory on its own. Yeah. Um, it's not as a defensible space, but it's not... It's a big wooden hall. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, dendrochronology is kind of awesome. It sounds it. And this site, it's... Yeah, you're right. It's not exactly a castle. It's not a defensible space. Hmm. They haven't figured out how to build in stone yet, for a start. It's always it's a snag. Even though Asgard's walls are made of stone. Oh, fair because point. Because the builder goes to a quarry. Of course. But in this time period, they're building in timber, not stone. Mm, mm. And it's an island, so would you need to put a defensive palisade around it? True. You've pretty much got a built-in one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not built. You've pretty much got a natural one. Yeah. So, yeah, this site is its quite awesome, not only because it's a really big thingy in the north of Norway and it's too cold... <laughs> But also because they chose to house the artefacts and the living history site very close to the original archaeological site and kept it in that space. Yeah. And and built a complete replica of it. You've probably seen pictures of it, though you might not know that it's this particular place. Mm. So as per usual, we will throw some links into the description for you to go and have a wander around. Yeah and have a look at what it is, what it does. There's some films on YouTube of people going in through the hall. There's some promotional films from the place itself. Okay. And it's really, it's interesting to contrast that to the archaeology and how they've chosen to to do it. Mm. And it kind of opens up not only the thread of how do we ethically do archaeology, how do we then choose to display it? It's right at the end of a dig when you've got a whole bucket full of artefacts. What do you do with them? Yeah. You know, you're going to have to clean you, them, catalogue I was gonna them say, and you, take them to a museum. You brush them with your little brush. You brush them with your old toothbrushes. Yes, you do. And cold water, which is just not fun. <laughs> um, but, you know, you've brushed them, numbered them, catalogued them, photographed them. What do you do next? Mm. And where do you where do they go? How do the public get to find out what happened on that site? Because the chances are your money for publication isn't in your original budget. No. So where does that come from? And how do you find time and space and experts to be able to put the expert reports into your publication report? Do you then make a publicly accessible copy for those that don't read archaeological reports? How do you then make a publicly accessible copy to... And do you have, like, in this case, do you build 
an exploration centre on the site? Can you do that? Is it ethical to do that? How do you make knowledge free yeah. in the age of the internet? Where it's free. Where it, everything has a price. Yes. And the price of getting archaeological knowledge out there is often incredibly high. Mm. Then you have the second set of questions, which is things around, as heathens, how do we relate to a site like that? How do we look at other people's interpretation of what went on there? Do we incorporate that into our practice? Do we only incorporate that into our practice if those academics are heathen? Do we choose to use all academic knowledge or just stuff that comes from pagan academics? Or just stuff that comes from non-pagan academics Yeah. on the grounds that they're only looking at it from an archaeological point of view Yeah. and not necessarily... I'm not, I'm not suggesting a for a moment that, that an archaeologist who happens to be heathen is, is any less less of a competent archaeologist but i'm you know there is the suggestion some might some some might feel more comfortable if there isn't that secondary link there Mm. you know i'm 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 an archaeologist i'm not an archaeologist but let's say i am i'm an archaeologist (laughs) i'm not heathen so i can look at this site with a mind an objectified mind yeah a, a, a mind that has no concerns about you know what the, the 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 religious implications of this might be yeah so you know it's just so yeah how do we <clears throat> it, it opens up questions that are probably worth a whole episode on the yeah, own yeah. of you know how do we i'll put a pin in it i will do that we'll come back to that okay. one okay <laughs> lovely listeners we're going to put a pin in it which is probably not a good idea when you've got you know a thingy from norway you don't want to go sticking pins in it definitely not no don't do it no, 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 especially bad, bad especially idea. not when it belongs to a chieftain. You and don't want to go. You know, it's cold. You do not want to yeah. go sticking pins in a chieftain's. I'm in, not in, even going to go there. In a in a in a massive thing yeah. thing belonging to a chieftain. Don't do it. No. Frithcast does not endorse this service or product. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely listeners. <laughs> that lovely image yes if you want to find us online and come and talk about this archaeological site or any of the other stuff that we've talked about or even stuff that we haven't talked about or even stuff that we haven't talked about we are quite up for a random conversation you've probably figured that one out by now or stuff that's happened in your hometown that the world hasn't heard about yet no hang on that's daisy egan sorry yeah that's somebody else's podcast that's fine (laughs) it's all good we'll pass the memos on it's all good (laughs) If you want to find us online, you can find me. I'm Suzanne Martin. I'm on Facebook under that name. And for now, I am Githering Jeans on Twitter. <laughs> and if you want to find me for any reason, uh, I am Kate Colwind on Facebook. That's about it, really. On Discord. I am on... Uh, yes. Yeah, I am on Discord. If you want to find our Discord server, you can go to Facebook and uh, type uh, go to fb.com slash frithcastpod. And that will give you links to our... That's our, our little Facebook page. That will give you links to our group and to our Discord server, which is our virtual, virtual campfire. Yeah. Which you would be more than welcome to uh, come and yeah. uh, join us at. Come and rock up. That was Have me. Have brew. Kettle's always on. With a preposition, I think. It was, but it's all good. Yeah, you can do yeah, that. We can. Um, we yeah. can do that. Prepositions are cool. Virtual virtual coffee and uh, coffee and drink prepositions are cool. <laughs> I wear a preposition now. Prepositions are cool. Um, <laughs> coffee and cakes around the virtual campfire. We'll see you then. 
Yes. Uh, there, brother. And if we uh, don't talk to you beforehand, we hope you'll join us again for episode 143. 143. In one episode's time. In one episode's time. And in two episodes' time, it's the random wheel. Apparently. I hope to see you then, too. Indeed. Take care. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.